Playlist with Ben and Fiona. Ironically, I've been busier during lockdown than I've ever been in my whole entire life, so it's been quite weird. Welcome to the Playlist, ISO edition, where we talk about movies and TV shows that are worth your time. I'm Fiona Williams, and I manage our online coverage of movies and TV at SBS, and I'm joined by my colleague, remotely, Ben Yuen. Hey, Ben, are you out there? Yes, here I am on the other side of this Zoom call once again. Wearing my best set of pyjamas and I'm raring to go because this week we're talking about our Kate who transforms herself into the conservative firebrand Phyllis Schlafly and she's pitted against Rose Byrne's Gloria Steinem in Mrs. America. Fee, you're speaking to Officer Karen O'Leary from Wellington Paranormal and we're catching up with what we've been watching. Which is a lot again because we're still in self-isolation. So much. There's so much to watch, so much to talk about. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Up first, Mrs. America. I am not against women. I am not against women working outside the home. But what I am against is the women's liberation movement. So, it's the early 70s, Richard Nixon is in power and the Vietnam War is raging. Building on the civil rights victories won through the 1960s, a radical movement of second wave feminists including Betty Friedan, Tracy Ullman and Gloria Steinem, Rose Byrne pushed through a constitutional equal rights amendment enshrining equality for women. Enter Phyllis Schlafly, Kate Blanchett. A Republican mother of six with a frustrated political career and a supportive, to an extent, husband, John Slattery, claiming to represent the voices of America's housewives. Battle lines are drawn as each side recruit to their cause. Sarah Paulson, Melanie Linsky and Jean Triplehorn among those within Schlafly's coalition. Elizabeth Banks and Uzo Aduba's presidential challenger Shirley Chisholm amongst the women's libbers. And as time wears on, cracks begin to form between the various internal factions. Let's hear a bit. We want the right to be a mother, the right to be a wife. The libbers want to create a sex-neutral feminist totalitarian nightmare. Do you know what you're saying has no basis in fact? Our movement is about fighting the oppression of all women. We do not want housewives thinking that we are against them. We are against them. Revolutions are messy. Fiona, I know you've been watching. What did you think? Well, I am really enjoying this. I'm only two eps in, so it's sort of a weekly drop, this show. So it's, um, I think it's 10 eps all up maybe. So it's the story of the leading women of the feminist movement of the 70s and their adversaries, but it it's not bound to being a historical retelling of it. It's not a really earnest kind of story, which, you know, this subject matter could be. It could risk going into that territory, but it's fun, it's lively, it's ironic, and it's a real actor's gift, really. No, it's it's really fun. I'm I'm loving it. What about you? I think the writing is fantastic. It's uh, created by Davi Waller, who's a woman who has previously written for um, everything from Desperate Housewives through to Mad Men. Mm. So she's brought a team together of uh, women writers and also for the most part female directors as well. And what I loved is, you know, there's obviously when you're recounting historical events and you're trying to explain a lot to the audience, it's very easy for that to become didactic. But I just found there's there's so many electric scenes where you have two different viewpoints kind of going at each other and it crystallises 
the debates at the time, but in a way that's just very entertaining and very dramatic. I, I just I just loved scene after scene. I just loved it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just that whip smart kind of dialogue. And you're right, there, every scene does have sort of a oppositional argument through it. Even when it's allies in a room, everyone's got their own agendas and the egos and it's it's wonderful. And each episode focuses on one of the women of the movement, pro and con feminism. So we mentioned Kate Blanchett. She's an executive producer here and she gets first. She's the star of all the promos, <laughs> you know, our Kate, Kate the Great, all that. But um she starts it all as Phyllis Schlafly, and it's the pronunciation that is part of some of the fun in this show where the L's go in her name. But, you know, it starts with her and she's the anti-feminist of this whole lot and, you know, leading the charge with all, all of the um, the perfectly quaffed homemakers. They bake bread to try and convince their local um, politicians to vote their way. Um, it's it's great fun and it's another of the increasing number of roles where Kate's cheekbones <laughs> get featured prominently and she's perfectly quaffed and... It's wonderful to start with the anti-hero of this uh, exercise and then there's a Rose Byrne episode as Gloria Steinem in the second one and is it perfectly cast, you know, the, the lookalike with the wig and the glasses here, she looks fantastic again and uses her looks as part of her charm. It's it's part of that conversation really where she, you know, is a, is a very attractive feminist and for people who, mm. who have a fixed viewpoint on what feminists yeah, look strength like. strength and weakness you know, in terms of her critics. Exactly, yeah. It's worked into the storyline of how she how she negotiates the world as some of her contemporaries might otherwise have done. I've seen the first four and I think the third ep is told from the perspective of Uzo Aduba's character, Shirley Chisholm, which is a fascinating story, which I was completely unaware of, of mm. the not only the first woman to seek the nomination for presidential candidate, but... She was a black woman as well. So her story is incredible. But the fourth episode focuses on Tracy Ullman's character, Betty Friedan, who at one point was, you know, the leading light of the feminist movement and is not being held in quite the same regard at at this point in her life. And, again, this is just a a very well-told episode from her perspective. But... I have to admit that I'm not always the greatest fan of Kate Blanchett. I, I can find her a very mannered actress. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, I mean, I, I have a bit of a joke that I think of her a little bit as uh, just purely in her choice of roles as the female Johnny Depp in that she uh, asked to see what the outfit is before she asked to see what the script is. <laughs> and um, But... I have to say she is she is very convincing here and I mm. think that one of the real strengths of the show and again this could have been so ham-fisted is that despite her opposition to the feminist movement she is in many ways a feminist herself mm. she's breaking the the kind of the rules and what the assumptions are about the kind of role that she's expected to play constantly um it's just that she's put herself on the other side of the ideological divide and 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 her performance really captures that really well agreed yeah that that's the irony at the heart of all this it's um you know she's staunch anti-feminist but in through her through what she's doing you you see that's that's the way it works for her (laughs) um but i i'm i'm with you on that i'm not always team kate um sometimes 
I do feel she can come across very theatrical and um, it doesn't always suit the role. But here I think it does because there is that calculating element to to Phyllis. Watching this especially um, and knowing that she's EP, I can imagine that this would be a role that Meryl, Meryl Streep would have done, you know, a couple of decades ago maybe uh, yeah. in the way that you're always looking at her in the scene and she just has that way that Meryl does that famously she'll do a take where she's not the most prominent character in the room but your eyes are on Meryl and I think that's that she has that strength the same way Meryl does. You're always drawn to to watching her in the scene. Yeah. And I mentioned the cheekbones as a joke and that's kind of goes back to Carol too. It makes me want to watch contouring videos on YouTube. But, um, <laughs> it, it, you know, I think her perfectly coiffed look in this is so integral to the character as well. So, I think sort of the other thing I wanted to talk about was the 70s and I think one thing that I, again, really enjoyed and admired about this is that... You know, Nixon's president, but we don't see him. I think there's episodes where his name is barely mentioned. The Vietnam War, we don't see any of it. They're very easy go-tos in terms of setting up the period and the time and place. And it doesn't go there because it doesn't need to, and I found that very refreshing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely the same. And um, I think in the way that the best period series and, and films work, there's so much for a contemporary audience and they're not and they're not making this by chance at this moment either because you know a lot of rights are under threat especially for women and especially for women of color and it it just the way you slice and dice this it's so relevant to this moment and um and also the way that there are women in the administration in the US um and supporters of it who there's a lot of Phyllis Schlafly's out there at the moment. Um, so it's very timely. Also being set in the 70s, as you say, there's not a lot of those calling cards. But the shadow of Reagan and knowing that he's coming does loom large in it as well. But I just love that you know why they're making it now, but also it's not really ramming that down your throat, for want of a better phrase. No, no. I think that uh, this will have a, a long shelf life and it is just very revealing about that period. So I think that it's going to speak to a lot of people over, you know, a good course of time. I think the one 70s sort of nod that I did felt was over the top is the disco title sequence. I, didn't, I love that. Oh. I, I, <laughs> I love think, the disco I, Beethoven 7th. There's, there's not a disco scene in the entire show <laughs> and yet the entire title sequence is disco themed. I Sorry, hard disagree on that one because uh, that was always buried on the soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever and, sorry, it's come into its own with some animation, no less, so no. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right, all right, we'll agree to disagree on that. Please play it, Jeremy. <laughs> so that's Mrs America and that's Going Out Weekly on Foxtel. So back in 2014, Taika and Jermaine Clement made a mockumentary movie, What We Do in the Shadows, highly popular, spawned uh, a US remake series. But it also spawned a New Zealand spin-off series, Wellington Paranormal, which has been a big hit for SBS Viceland and SBS On Demand. And all of them, by the way, both What We Do in the Shadows and all episodes of Wellington Paranormal up now on SBS On Demand. But for you had a chance this week to do a video call with one of the very stars of Wellington Paranormal, the actress behind Officer O'Leary. I certainly did. And her name is Karen O'Leary. And uh, she talks about the 
it's not coincidental at all how, yeah, how her, the character is her own name. Um, yeah, no, we had a good chat on Zoom. Um, it was prompted really because she's been the face of New Zealand police during their lockdown over in New Zealand and um, doing some very funny public service announcements about, you know, social distancing and staying home. Kia ora, Aotearoa. I hope you're all staying in your bubbles. But when you do need to go out for a walk or to get supplies, it's really important that you stay two metres away from other people to reduce the chance of transmission. So, this is O'Leary's guide to staying two metres away from other people. Very important messages, but delivered with typical Kiwi humour. They're, they're very funny and they cut through. Two metres, please. At two metres, please. I don't want your COVID if you start to sneeze. At two metres, please. At two metres, please. I don't want to breathe your COVID if you start to wheeze. So I thought, oh, I should have a chat to her. And I didn't know this before doing my research, but uh, she's an early childhood worker. So she's been working through the lockdown as well, doing videos uh, for children. So we talk about her dual careers. Uh, this acting luck has, has come a little more recently. But having watched Wellington Paranormal with all of its wonderful cameos, you'd know that Clark Gayford, Jacinda Ardern's partner, mm. you know, has featured in a prominent cameo and he does again in one of the public service announcements. So she's quite tight with the whole first family of New Zealand. And there's been some other great cameos throughout the season, um, you know, with the Top Twins, the fantastic um, comedy duo Linda Top plays her mum in the show and has also come back for one of those public service announcements as well. So, um, yeah, we had a good long chat. Uh, shoot the breeze. What else do you do when you're in um, self-isolation? But, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was great fun. She's wonderful to talk to. Sounds great. Let's have a listen. Karen O'Leary, thank you for joining us. You want to wait till the end to thank me? I might be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll hold that off. <laughs> Um, right at the end and then, then do a sincere thanks if you mean it, but feel free to say, actually, what a waste of my time. <laughs> if I haven't um, interrupted a day you had planned. Oh, look, when you're in lockdown, every day is a new day, you know, and it's just, these, these are the kind of things that I love doing. So Aww. it's been very really good. Excellent. Finally, and actually, ironically, I've been busier during lockdown than I've ever been in my whole entire life, so it's been quite weird. Well, I was going to say, yeah, like for a lot of people reluctantly um, haven't had a lot to do, but, um, yeah, you, you've been keeping yourself really busy. Can you talk us through some of the things you've got through the checklist of your lockdown? What's it been like for you? Yeah, sure. So just like in a, in a I guess I'll try and be um, succinct, but that's really not my forte. But um, so obviously uh, my main job is, is an early childhood teacher, so I, I, I'm the head teacher at an early childhood centre. So... Yeah, basically, yeah, so I, we obviously had to close the centre down. And then I came home, I was like, oh, this is weird, I'm going to go into lockdown. So I thought, what's the best thing to do when you're going into lockdown and not going to be seeing anyone? And, and that is to cut all your hair off, so shave your head and dye, bleach it blonde. So I did that. And then the day after I'd done that, I got the call from the New Zealand police saying, um, and from Paul Yates, who's the producer for Wanted to Paranormal, saying, oh, the police want to do some ads for the, you know, to, to help through this, this situation. And I was like, um, well, I've just done this to my hair and I sent him a photo and he was like, whoa, yeah, Kate, can you, can you fix that? So then I had to go to the supermarket and get like a, a, a home, like a brown, some weird brown dye and um, came back and had to re-dye my hair. And on the back of the box, I remember it was like, do not use this product if you've bleached your hair in the last 15 days. So I had no idea what was going to happen. Um, I was pretty sure my hair was going to fall out, but luckily it kind of turned this weird caramel kind of colour, which is okay. Um, yeah, so then I made the police ads which has been really good and positive, and I think they've been received really well. Um, but then another friend of mine who I've known for years through my early childhood work got in touch and said, oh, we're making this learning channel, this television channel to help homeschooling. 
um, can you do the do the early childhood section of that and make some little shows that go on the um, on the telly? And I was like, yeah, I can do that um, without really thinking about whether I could or not. And um, so then I found myself on the um, on the public kainga, the home learning TV, doing a little early childhood segment. Um, so yeah, it's been pretty busy, but really fun. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And, you know, with a lot of people juggling working from home and caring and homeschooling and um, you must be loving this newfound respect, I'm sure, for early childhood uh, teachers and teachers in general. Oh, so, yeah, I'm so glad that you said that because that, I think, is absolutely, hopefully, one of the the real real positives that should come out of this is the the value, especially, and I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but in New Zealand, Certainly early childhood is always seen as kind of the poor cousin of the education sector. And I've been, you know, I'm vehemently opposed to that notion. And I, I feel really passionate about the value that ECE does have and does play until naturally being successful in their whole educational journey. So, yeah, if, if, if that can come out of this in any way, shape or form, then I think that's a choice. Yeah, totally. Um, and in the videos you've been doing, have you kind of broached the subject of this weird time we're in like how, how have you talked to kids about it or how and also how do you suggest people talk to their kids about it yeah so I guess obviously we've because I've had like we've had zoom meetings with the children at my center and I guess as well sometimes we have the, a tendency to not be as honest with children as perhaps we should be because children are pretty onto it to be fair I mean they're the most intuitive people that we have because you haven't learned to mask your intuition yet when you're a young person so I think they're very aware of when you're trying to keep things you know a little bit hidden and so I, I don't think there's a lot of point in that and there's there are positive broad ways to explain situations that it's honest and upfront but help children to be able to start to process those things so I, I guess for me I would just say yeah be open and just have those discussions you know the, the worst thing you can do is not engage in dialogue I reckon yeah for sure. And with, with the videos you did with the police um, in your faux police career, how, um, yeah. for these ones, how many did you do for the for the lockdown scenario? Yes, so we've done, um, how many did we do? We did seven, then three, then three, maybe 13, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so there's 13 episodes. And, yeah, like I said, yeah, they've, they've been just, I think the New Zealand police have done a really, really good job. They're very proactive about thinking of different ways to engage with people and, I guess with something like this, which is so unprecedented, um, to have a way that is, is you know, lighthearted but still does have a serious message, I think is, re- is really a, a step in the right direction because it means that people that maybe wouldn't normally tune in, you know, people aren't going to listen to the police saying, you've got to do what you've got to do, you know, like that's, that's not going to appeal to everybody. So to have a slightly different version of that where it's like, these guys are idiots, but I'll kind of listen to what they're saying because they're kind of maybe a little bit entertaining then I think that's just, I think it's a really clever strategy that police have employed and I think it's working really well for them. Mm, yeah, no, that's great. Um, and I'm sure you'll get a lot of gigs as MC at Christmas, um, police Christmas parties and retirement parties going going forward. Are you getting sort of invites there for... Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah, I can come over to the SBS party if you guys need me. I'm, I'm free on Christmas, yeah. <laughs> Assuming we can all fly and we're all out of the, out of the woods here. Um, yeah, we'll hold you to that, but you want to take... take I'll just get it. you've got a really established career as a as an early childhood teacher but how did you get into playing um the you know illustrious officer o'leary um yeah well it's, it's a good story actually and i do like to tell it so it's basically it's all of the things that i think happened for me in terms of my career now have been as a result of positive relationships so 
Tina Cleary, who's the casting director and does lots of casting for Taika in lots of his films, um, her children came to my early childhood centre. So um, I remember one day she, she came up to me and said, oh, hey, Karen, these, uh, these two jokers are making this vampire movie and they need a couple of cops. You should try out for it. And I was like, uh, no, because I'm not an actor and just no. And um, she was like, no, 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 honestly, you'd be good at it. I was like, I don't want to do that. No, thank you, Tina. You're a nice person. But then she was such a nice person, I felt a bit mean saying no to her. So she was like, well, look, can you just come and chat to me on Saturday? We'll just have a chat about it. And if you don't like the idea of it, then I won't, I'll stop hassling you. And again, this story has been well documented and actually, you know, changed to me being like drunk the whole time, which is not actually true. But I was a little bit hungover on the Saturday that I went to talk to her. I had a really good time on the Friday. And I, so again, I woke up and was like, oh, I really can't be bothered going to talk to Tina. But I was like, no, I'd better go. And I turned up and she'd actually secretly organised an audition with Cohen Holloway, who's in pretty much all of Tyker's films. So I was like, oh my gosh, there's this guy that I know from the movies. And then she's like, okay, just, um, you know, basically we're going to just, me and Lauren Taylor, who's amazing as well, uh, are going to pretend to be kind of these kind of, you know, Eastern European people. You just say what you'd say if you were a cop. And that was my, that was the brief. So then I just was like, oh, but I was feeling so sick. I think I was just so deadpan because I was trying not to be sick. Um, and then, yeah, basically, whatever I said, and I can't remember it at all, um, she rang me the next day and said, oh, yeah, they really liked you. They, Tyker and Jermaine want you in their movie. I was like, who? And I remember thinking, oh, do they, does she mean the actual Tyker and Jermaine? And then I was, yeah, and then the rest. So then, yeah, just turned up to set on one day, and they were like, okay, you're a policeman. It was policeman, which I found a little bit offensive. Um, you're a policeman too, so you basically you just let Mike Minogue, who's the, the, other, the other guy, do most of the talking, and you was kind of like his backup. Then we got on, we got onto set on the, the very first of the, the shoot day, and um, I was being pretty nervous because I really didn't know what on earth I was doing. Um, I had a lime brown can of beer in my bag, which I drank just quickly before I went on to, out onto set. And then, um, yeah, I remember meeting Mike, and he was so lovely. You know when you just meet someone that you just get on with straight away? So that was so fortuitous, and I think that has maybe been the, the biggest, the strongest aspect of us working together you know, on, in an ongoing fashion. Yeah, and then we just got down there and they were like, oh, because there was no script at all for the movie. So basically I got dressed up into my cop uniform and then Jermaine was like, you know, just before we went out to, to shoot, okay, so actually, Karen, we decided we want you to do most of the talking. I was like, oh, okay. He's like, and what's your name going to be? I was like, um, shouldn't you know what my name is because it's your movie? He's like, oh, I don't know. Um, what is your actual name? I was like, O'Leary. He's like, oh yeah, that's so cop. And so that's how it ended up just being our actual name because Jermaine hadn't really thought about it. And yeah, so that's why we just ended up being O'Leary and Minogue, which actually in, in hindsight is kind of good and cop sounding. <laughs> it's so cop. <laughs> yeah. yeah, excellent. Yeah, it is. Eh? It's like two Irish Boston cops or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so have you crafted this whole backstory for her now in your, in your head? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 for sure, yeah. I love that um, Dame Linda Top um, has played your mum and came back to reprise the role in one of your public service announcements. Yeah, what, what was that like? I imagine you're a fan. Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, talk about New Zealand icon and just, you know, in, in so many ways. And for me, I remember, and this is interesting, and, and I'm happy to talk about it, like the first time I ever learnt about what a lesbian was was in reference to the top twins because we had some very um, we had some very staunch Christian neighbours who I used to you know be good friends with. I remember one time going over there and um, I'd watch the top twins and thought, man, those guys are so funny. 
And I remember thinking, oh, there's someone who about them I just really, really connect with and like. I remember, you know, talking to my neighbours and saying, oh, did you watch the top ones? And I remember my neighbour saying to me, oh, you shouldn't watch them because you know they're lesbians. And I remember hearing that word, not knowing what it was, and but not wanting to embarrass myself. So I was like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, I don't, I don't even like them. And that was the first time I heard that word. And then I went away and did a bit of research and I found out what it meant. And so to then be in a position where I'm having Linda Top as my actual mum in a TV show is pretty surreal, to be fair. And she is just such a good... She's just an absolute legend. She's so cool and so funny and so genuine. Like, she just, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. That was really cool. Yeah. No, that's lovely. Love the story to it as well. And speaking with, like, yeah. of the actual series itself as well, I mean, um, I guess you guys are the, our, um, our plants in the, in the series, but all the wildness that goes on around you. Can you talk us through kind of the making of an episode and kind of um, I would imagine it's far more scripted than, yeah. uh, than your role in what we do in The Shadows? Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. And I guess with the nature, the nature of it, again, I'm so new to all of this, so I had no idea. I just, like, I mean, I just turn up and hopefully do the right thing. But um, so yeah, with the film, there's no script. But then with when you're t- trying to turn around a television show, they there was always so we had a script. And the good thing about one of the paranormal was that we got a variety of different people to write each script. So you kind of got a different um, view and angle from, because we had like some really good, strong young female writers that wrote some of the scripts. So Melanie Bracewell. Coco Solid wrote one of the scripts. Um, so there was a real range of um, viewpoints that got input into the scripts. So then we would always have, we'd do like a scripted version of every scene first. And then we would do, Jermaine would often be there and be like, oh, maybe just try this. Because he's just always got amazing and very innovative and hilarious ideas. So then we'd do a Jermaine version. And then they'd say like, right, you, Karen, you and, you and Mike, just say whatever you want to say. And then me and Mike would ramble on for as long as we could before everyone told us to shut up. And, that is, and then it's a real mix of all of those three, those three bits, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the magic happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the, and it, I think that's the, the beauty of it. Like, sometimes, for me as well, for personally, like, my, some of my favourite bits are when me and Mike are just actually talking rubbish to each other in the car or whatever. That's when I feel like we're really ourselves in terms of our characters and having a, just a good, silly time, yeah. Yeah, personal favourite as well. Being stuck on the fence was was a pretty great moment in um, episode. <laughs> Thank you. That was like yeah, I think that was the first episode we did. Yeah. So all of a sudden they're like, okay, um, you've got to get stuck on the fence. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. And then because when I was supposed to run and try and get over the fence, Jermaine showed me how to do that. And Jermaine is six foot something, okay, and I'm not. I'm five foot four at at a stretch. And he was like, just run, and he showed me because he's, he's just such a lyricist. He's just like so relaxed and easy going. He's like. Just um, just kind of run out the fence and then do this. And but he's obviously very tall, so he just like jumped up onto the fence and pulled himself up. And I was like, "Yeah, Jermaine, do you realise that I'm nowhere near as tall as you, and probably not quite as strong, maybe, you know?" So that's why that whole scene ended up just I looked like a total munter, but um, I was trying my best. <laughs> you gave it a red hot go. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Give it, give it my best shot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I love the coping strategies you, you employ at times like that. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we talked about um, Linda Top's cameo, but, um, you know, you're quite in with New Zealand's first family there um, with, with Clark and the... Oh, um, yeah, yeah, my old mates Clark and Jacinda, you mean, those guys. <laughs> I certainly do. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, look. What do you want to ask me about them? I'll tell oh, you all I mean, the secrets. Yeah, tell me all the guys. And, I mean, well, firstly, have you put flyers for your um, early childhood school around? Like, are you trying to get Ned enrolled? 
Oh, well, I've, I've offered um, free early childhood education for Jacinda, and, or for Neve, obviously, not for Jacinda. She really doesn't need it. She's, I think she's beyond that now. She knows quite a lot of stuff already. Um, yeah, but certainly um, it's, it's been really nice. We've, like, Clark's a great guy, and obviously he's done sort of the TV kind of stuff as well. So it was really nice um, to have him back on board for these these police videos, the, the one that we did with, with Neve and the beautiful Neve in the background. Yeah. Um, and no disrespect to my amazing friends over in Australia, but I feel very fortunate and very um, blessed to have Jacinda Ardern as a leader of our country. And I think in, in a time like this, and she's had a pretty a pretty good 12 months in terms of having to deal with a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just think her approach, her positive approach to how she does things is such a bit of fresh air. So to be remotely even like side involved with her via being in a video with Clark gave it is pretty much the pinnacle of my career. But I did actually send her an email um, yesterday saying that she should come on Karen's house. So I'm just waiting to hear back. I think she will though, because she's going to interview Susie Cato. And Susie Cato's lovely, but I'm, you know, I'm the, like, I'm the next Susie Cato. So yeah. Right. Well, good luck with that. I want to see it. Um, and that show, is that just for the duration of the lockdown or is that maybe going to be a show beyond? Well, I guess that, that's a very good question and I don't know the answer. Um, at the moment we got, um, it's been commissioned for, you know, 20 episodes of Karen, Karen's House, the learning stuff. And the potential now that we're at le- le- level three for potentially a bit longer, there's probably going to be some more of them. Um, and yeah, certainly there's been talk about whether we just this becomes an ongoing thing, and it's something that I've actually wanted to do for a long time anyway. Um, just because, yeah, I've always wanted to have a show called Play Cool. You know, do you remember Play School? Did you have that in Australia? Absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah, so I, my idea was that I've, I've got this really cool friend, Tom, who works with me and is in my band. I've got a kids' band called Fun and Funner, and we're gonna we were always wanting to start a TV show called Play Cool, which is like Play School but eat just way cooler and way more fun and um so but it's just really weird that now all of a sudden thanks to COVID-19 I've managed to kind of almost start that um that show so yeah fingers crossed soon yeah. I might be on a lunchbox you never know <laughs> amazing a drink bottle combo yeah that'd be amazing <laughs> um yeah, well, Actually, yeah, yeah it'll be recyclable though not a plastic one that'll be bad yeah <laughs> a wooden drink bottle and lunchbox yeah. Um, and you know, while we're in lockdown, a lot of people are watching a lot of things. Um, have, are you have you been binging in the time you've been home? Well, funnily enough, and this is a people joke about. Mike Minogue always laughs at me about this because I don't actually really ever watch TV or movies. <laughs> I don't really. I just get a bit bored. So um, I'm kind of more of a doer than a watcher. So yeah, I've been a bit useless and haven't watched. Have I watched anything? Nah, I haven't binged anything. I've just been doing, I've been doing some um, singing and playing some of my, my songs, my kids' album. But yeah, I don't really watch stuff because I just get a bit bored. And I just like do lots of cooking. I really like cooking. That's, the, that's what I've been doing. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. When people aren't watching things, they're, they're cooking, making sourdough and things. What have you been whipping up? Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, and I like to cook for people that aren't watching. So the people in my bubble have been watching heaps of shit. And then they just tell me, Karen, go and make us some food. And I make the food. <laughs> okay, you've got it well sorted there. <laughs> um, well, thank yeah. you so much. Um, it's been a real treat to talk to you. I love the show and love what you do. Um, yeah, and good luck with your future endeavours, oh, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully we'll get that lunchbox happening. Yeah, and also just get me over for your Christmas party, remember? Of course, yeah, we'll get the kayak and, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you, you've got control of that, eh? So you can, you can organise that from your end? I can. I've got your email. I'll be in touch. <laughs> 
send me the details and I'll be there. All right. Yeah, well, yeah. That, that sounds great, Fiona. I can't wait. It's going to be such a good time. Oh, thank you so much. Love it. Oh, no worries. Thank you. See ya. Bye. And that was Karen O'Leary, star of Wellington Paranormal. And uh, we look forward to seeing her over at the SBS Christmas party, uh, Kayak in Hand. <laughs> Another new friend of the show. Yeah, new friend of the show. And if we don't see her at the Christmas party, then we can always just watch her on SBS On Demand. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> but now it's time for what we've been watching, which... The answer to that question is plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, should I kick it off? Yeah, you go first. Ben, what have you been watching? I have been watching a couple of docos, Fiona, um, about some intriguing characters. I do think that we talked about this last time with Tiger King, that there is something about, I guess, sort of not being exposed to the usual world out there that makes us very interested in how people tick and and so diving into some of these stranger than fiction docos is a good way to do it. Mm. Um, so one of them was the New Zealand documentary Tickle. Have you seen this? Oh, I have, yeah. I watched it a while, a couple of years ago, but yes. Yeah, yeah, from 2016. So um, it's available on iTunes. Uh, it was made by a couple of um, Kiwi mates, David Ferrier, who then did the Dark Tourist series for Netflix more recently, and Dylan Reeve. And it is one of those docos that's promoted as, you know, the, the less you know, the better because of the various twists and turns. So it's it's hard to speak about it without giving too much away. But the setup is the sport of competitive tickling. And David Ferrier comes across a Facebook page which is trying to recruit young men young, good-looking men to fly over to L.A. for this company, um, Jane O'Brien Media, and they will record you competing in the event of competitive tickling. And I went into this doco, that's all I knew going into this doco, and I I did expect that I was going to see an amusing, quirky sports film. And, you know, like I think that that I'm sure would have been entertaining in and of itself. We all love a competition doc, but it very quickly becomes not that. Mm. And a uh, investigation and expose into deeper, darker goings on behind the internet. Intriguingly, the lawyer who resembles Michael Douglas from the Netflix doco series Don't Fuck With Cats Hmm. also appears in this. No way. Okay. Just so that you know that they take place in the same cinematic universe, (laughs) clearly. Mm -hmm. But uh, I I loved it. I thought it was great. Same. Yeah, I've forgotten that. Well, yeah, I watched that well before I saw um, Don't Fuck With Cats. But, um, yeah, it's so good. And you're right. It's you're selling the sizzle, not the steak, because you don't really want to know what happens. It, it, it's one of those ones where the revelations just keep coming and there is, there's a postscript after the film was made too. I think there's a short they made that wraps up a few loose ends. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a follow-up, which I haven't yet seen, but it, it is, again, we talked about this a bit, the, the docos that send you on Wikipedia wormholes, and this is Absolutely. definitely one. Okay, well, what do you follow that with? What do you watch after Tickled? Well... I went down the path of, you know, another 
absorbing, controversial, central character, not giving him too much away about Tickled, uh, but the documentary The Kingmaker, which is out now on Stan, recent doc this time, um, made by Lauren Greenfield, who a few years ago she made a feature doc called The Queen of Versailles, which was about oh. a um, kind of wealthy couple that in, in the States that had sort of fallen victim to uh, the global financial crisis, which was an intriguing doc. And uh, this one is about Imelda Marcos. So it's a portrait of uh, the Philippines through Imelda Marcos's eyes and, of course, you know, references to her many, many pairs of shoes, So, which works both as a character study of someone who's been described as a bit of an unreliable narrator, someone who certainly is trying to twist history to her own ends. But then we also see the rise of the Marcos's influence on present-day Filipino politics Mm. and her son's campaign to become vice president and the election of Duterte, which sent... Filipino politics in jump to the right. Mm. And uh, so, again, yeah, this was um, an intriguing watch. Wow. You have been busy. Okay. Well, and where's that one? That's over at Stan. Okay. And Fee, what have you been watching? Okay. Well, a few things. Um, well, while we're still on docs, I'll, um, I'll mention one that I watched. This one's on Netflix. So a recent um, drop on Netflix is called Crip Camp. A Disability Revolution, and it is wonderful. It draws a line from a summer camp that took place in the late 60s and early 70s for kids with physical and intellectual disabilities. I recently read a a novel about this. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, and it was, you know, classic summer camp, and these kids who, you know, normally sort of people look the other way or they're a bit shunned by society, they just met people like them and had an amazing, they had a blast over this summer, Um, and it speaks to people who were there, some of the carers and uh, some, you know, it looks at what ha- what happened since and how instrumental that summer camp was in paving the way for what ultimately became the American Disabilities Act in the 90s. Uh, so that's a long, a long stretch of history, but it just looks at how some of the leading disability advocates emerged from this incredible summer. So it's you know, one of those wonderful documentaries, it's feature length and it's warm and it's hilarious, sort of the description of an outbreak of crabs at the camp is is hilarious. Um, and also, you know, you find yourself crying a minute later as well with some of the, some of the um, disclosures that happen. It's, yeah, I highly recommend it. It um, produced by Michelle and Barack Obama, just incidentally. Mm. Uh, yeah, but it, it's, it's a really good one to make you feel good about the world for five minutes. Um, Fee, is this one for the whole family while we're gathered at home? Yeah, that's a good point. I guess people are, there is a bit more co-viewing happening. Um, look, I, I famously forget scenes. So if the, <laughs> I, from what I can recall, yes, absolutely. Well, you know, there's the mention of um, people getting it on at the camp, but it, it's in reflection and, you know, it's with the benefit of hindsight. So it's quite funny, the talk of sex at the camp, but you know, overall, the the stories about people who've spent their lives trying to improve their own circumstances, and that so the people who come in their wake, you know, that this this is, the Disabilities Act is what led to ramps in buildings, and it's just 
about making the world a better place. So I think that's absolutely the best story to be telling kids right now. Um, you know, I'd say tweens. I don't think Little Ease would. It's a very talking heads doco, but um, wonderfully warm. I, yeah, I, you get a good feeling from watching it. Great. And what else have you been watching, Fee? Um, look, I'm jumping around a bit here, but well, one thing that's that's not for kids. Let's just put. I might jump to that. Say, I watched um, a very English scandal, the three part uh, telly series that won a yeah, bunch of awards. I've seen this? It's true. Oh, you have seen it? Yeah. Yeah, it played on ABC a couple of weeks ago, so I banked that up and and watched those last weekend. Um, so Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw are the leads in this, and it's um. From Russell T Davies, who we'd know from years and years. So it's, again, the writing is magnificent in this and Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw act their socks off and everything else, quite frankly, in this. Um, And it's about a political scandal in the 70s and Jeremy Thorpe, you know, a a leading Tory in the UK and mostly in the closet gay man tries to get his former lover murdered for fear that he may end his political career with some quite raunchy disclosures that uh, and letters that he can and can put out in the world. But, uh, yeah, so it's about the ridiculous lengths that uh, he went to to try and silence his past paramour. Great fun. And and a reminder, I think, of how good an actor Hugh Grant is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when given, given the right material. Yeah, yeah, no, he, he is in his element here, I think. And, um, you know, there's a little nod to his own whiff of scandal a few years back. But he's the real star of this, I think. And Ben Wishaw is great too as as Norman, the old boyfriend who just, well, he won't die, but also he, he keeps cropping up every few years in, in Jeremy's life and becomes quite a thorn in his side. So that that's great fun. Yeah, not, not one for co-viewing with the kids, I don't think. It's a bit raunchy in some of the descriptions. Um, catch that one. I had a real-life run-in with Hugh Grant in the Nice airport bathroom. Do tell. Well, we just ran into each other while <laughs> he was coming out and I was going in. But he was very apologetic. He was he, he switched straight into like the typical Hugh Grant kind of, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's gold. <laughs> you got more? I'm, oh, I want to hear more. Oh, more? Um, all right. Well, I've got one more. Well, I've got a lot more, but one more I'll mention. Look, I'm on the record for loving Project Runway and the Great British Sewing Bee and all of these, you know, designer reality documentary mm. shows, love them, lap them up. Can't always stitch myself. You but, do love um, a frock. I do love a frock and I love to watch how a good frock's made or a bad frock's made as the case may be. But um, a few months ago I watched the Netflix incarnation of this, which is Next in Fashion, which is quite excellent. But I'll skim over that because what I've been watching recently is the Amazon version of Same, which has a legacy with Project Runway because Heidi Klum and Tim Gunn, you know, the leading lights of Project Runway, have up sticks a couple of years ago and jumped to Amazon Prime to launch Making the Cut. I'm so keen to hear your thoughts because I, I love Project Runway and mm. have been very keen to know how this new show pans out. Ah, interesting. All right, well, I'll try and not give too much away because, well, I was very keen because, you know, I love all of this, as I've said. Um, so... The premise is really interesting because Amazon is backing it, of course, and this one is far more global in that, you know, it literally t- they, the shoot, it starts in New York, goes to Paris for a few episodes, goes to Japan for a few episodes, and then back to New York for a couple, for the last couple. We won't see um, the likes of that again for No, some time. exactly. I mean, even just watch it for the travel. There are these silly vignettes of Heidi and Tim in there, you know, kind of embedded and, yeah, I mean, we can do without those. But um, 
the idea is they want to find the next big thing in fashion. And you can see why Amazon would back something like this because they've got the platform, Amazon Prime, they've got the shop front, the mega world marketplace, and, of course, once they pick a winning look each week, that look is immediately available for sale in the Making the Cut store on Amazon. You know, on paper it all works, what could possibly go wrong, but quite a lot in the play out of the show because it's just a bit... Well, it's too compromised, I think, by being part of the Amazon family because they want people to push the design limits so they make a runway look and an accessible look, and the accessible one is obviously what's available for sale after. But some of these amazing designers run into trouble throughout the series because, you know, they're made to be unique and niche and when you want to sell in a mega marketplace like Amazon, that's not what works. And, uh, yeah, one of the poor designers... A little bit of a spoiler, but, um, you know, his whole thing is it's bespoke and there's a tailor on site and you just think, mate, <laughs> you're in the yeah. wrong competition here because that's not what's going to, to sell. But Naomi Campbell's one of the judges, which is fantastic. But the show, it, it's all over the shop. There's some of the judges drop out midway through, um, you know, the esteemed editor of French Vogue, Corinne Rotfield. She just, she's there for a couple of episodes and then we never see her again. <laughs> she's had enough. Absolutely. There's, then they replace her um, with sort of an Instagram star. I don't really know what her bag is. My, many people may be aware of her work. I mean, good luck to her. But um, Nicole Ritchie is there for a few episodes. She disappears for the Japan segment but then comes back. Yeah, it's just, it's a bit of a hodgepodge and I, I kind of love that too. But, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a mess. But I watched all 10 episodes. The rotating judges' chairs was a little bit of a hallmark of Project Runway as well. Michael Core would, like, appear and then disappear occasionally. True. But this is really only 10 eps and it, it's, yeah, I don't know. Just, I, I love that there's no explanation at all for why Kareen Rockfield just is not there anymore. <laughs> I think that uh, it also sounds like having to do, a, you know, off-the-rack outfit every single week mm. because it, on Project Runway, that might be sort of a once or twice in a season challenge yep. to sort of how you can convert your vision into something. Mm. But to do it every week, that sort of sounds like a bit laborious to watch. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's intriguing. Like the broader message is that designers need to be able to sell their product. And, I, you know, of course they do if you want a career. The other weird thing about this is from the first episode, a lot of the designers can't sew. And they, it's more like they, they have fantastic concepts and that's why they're designers. But I don't know, part of the fun of watching Project Runway and all the others is that you see them make their own clothes, whereas yeah. here it's they design, they go shop for the fabrics and whatnot, but then they cut it all up and pattern mark it and put it in a soup bag for these invisible seamstresses to work on overnight. Oh. So that's weird. Can you imagine that on, on MasterChef if someone just... <laughs> sort of throws together a few ingredients and then hands it off to someone else to cook up. Exactly. And then it's kind of like literally there's one episode where she can't sew and she pins it together. And then when Naomi Campbell finds that out, that's great. That, that's mm. good TV, but also I could be in that show. You know, I can draw sort of. And it, it's just part of the reason I, you know, I love a good frock, but I can't sew and turns out neither can they. Some of them. It's, it's like when someone on Project Runway resorts to glue and, yes. and everyone just gives them death stares from there on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I expect a certain level of standard here, but uh, anywho, makes for good TV, sort of. Mm. Well, maybe they'll, they'll work out some of these quirks by season two. Who knows? Yeah. The prize is a million dollars, by the way. 
million. All right, for for that I'll learn not to sew. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so that's out on Amazon now. There's also a plethora of viewing options over on SBS On Demand for free. And we've decided while we're in lockdown, we'll pull out a pick or two each time we catch up. And uh, I'm going to kick off with, uh, with something which our producer, Jeremy, mentioned he'd been watching, which is country music. So there are a couple of good music docs out there on SBS On Demand right now. Country music was directed by the famous Ken Burns, who uh, has spent his life documenting American history and all forms of Americana. Friend of the show, Ken Burns, who we had Mm. in Vietnam War, especially. And so, you know, this is a a very definitive take on uh, not just sort of the country music industry in the US, but also how it both reflected and helped evolve US society across sort of many, many decades um, and gave voice to people who hadn't necessarily had a voice before. Controversially, uh, we have the nine-hour international version and the US version was um, 16 hours. So for completists, that is available on DVD. But uh, if you if you want sort of the uh, the, the basic nuts and bolts, um, <laughs> you might find uh, the nine hours will do you just fine. And I have it on good authority that it's uh, that country music is a great series for microphone porn. Um, <laughs> if you are in into all things audio. Uh, Jeremy does recommend that particular part of it. I don't know what uh, Jeremy thinks of the documentary series Punk. Um, Four-part series. Two episodes have gone out now on Viceland, and so they're up on on demand now, two to go. It's produced by Iggy Pop, um, as well as the punk fashion designer John Vivatos. And uh, Iggy um, is a central character sort of throughout Talking Head and arguably there's something a little bit self-serving about this series which tries to um, recount the punk music movement um, across a number of decades. But uh, I think, you know, like like sort of great music docs, the strength is in, you know, who they get to speak and, you know, Johnny Rodden's there, Marky Ramone's there, Debbie Harry's there. You know, I think that... Uh, that they've managed to, through Iggy's network, locate a, a lot of the key players. And a, again, we've sort of talked a few times in this show about programs that capture the time and place, and this definitely does that. So uh, it's a good, fun time for um, for people who like to jump around and bang into other people. <laughs> and have a preference for safety pins. Yeah, you, and you have to do that from your own home at the moment. It's not too much um, jumping around, banging into other people allowed outdoors right now. No, it's quite the opposite, actually, yeah. But there's a very punk thing to do. And uh, what would you recommend, Fee, for purveyors of SBS On Demand? Well, what can we do? Well, um, while we're having a Karen O'Leary festival, um, there's actually another film that she's in which is available at SBS On Demand as well. Um, and this one is by friends of the show, Jackie Van Beek and uh, Madeline Sami, who you'd remember we um, spoke to them when this film was in cinemas, but uh, we now have it at On Demand. So that is called The Breaker Upperers. And uh, it's very funny. Very funny. Yep. 
Kiwi comedy about two cynical women who create an agency that helps couples break up with very elaborate stories. So if you want to kill someone off, they'll play the police who come to your door, etc., etc. So very increasingly elaborate circumstances. And uh, our good friend Karen O'Leary is in there as well. And um, nice little PS to that story. She got engaged at the premiere of the film um, and got married about a month ago to her beloved. So just just got in just before the lockdown. So this this really is a, a movie about finding love. Well, it is. Yeah, spoiler. But no, it's fun. So you should absolutely go and check that one out at SBS On Demand. And since you did two, I'm going to do another one. Um, I'm going to damn this one with faint praise because, look, it's not my favourite film, but I do think if you can't watch Grace of Monaco in self-isolation, have a bit of fun with it because it's not particularly good in my book, When Can You?, are you familiar with this film, Benjamin? I've seen pictures <laughs> that involving cheekbones. Yeah, and we're on a cheekbone thing now. But um, yeah, so we may we've done our Kate. So let's do our Nick, and she's playing Grace Kelly, Princess Grace of Monaco, in the story of that moment in the marriage. Well, I think she's about seven years in when. Things weren't going so well in Monaco. Also, Alfred Hitchcock was trying to get her back into acting. He wanted to cast her in Marnie and she wanted to do it, but the pressures of being Princess Grace came to bear and, um, yeah, we all know She was a yeah, very fascinating woman in real life. Yeah, very much, yeah. You wouldn't really know that from watching Grace in Monaco, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, look, it's I, I watch it with, what can I say? I'm, I'm, look, I don't think it's a very good movie. I'm going to keep just keep saying that, but it's fun to watch that way and look to watch this moment as as imagined by Olivier Dehaene, who kind of makes it as a fairy tale because she's a princess. We get it, but um, it overeggs that metaphor. And like with fairy tales, it tries to give her a happy ending. And also, it, I mean, it just it tries a bit too hard in upping the fantasy in this. There's a scene where she kind of gets princess training and it, you know, I, I just cut through that by saying, like, she's an actress. She's a was an accomplished actress. <laughs> she played princesses and in the movies. She's um, not Anne Hathaway in The Princess Diaries. <laughs> no, it didn't need that, but somehow it's got that in the movie. Anyway, so, look, this is also a recommendation, so... Also, maybe see what you think. It's funny because I did watch this at the Cannes Film Festival back in the day and review it for SBS Movies. We subsequently acquired <laughs> the movie, so my review is now the review for a film that we've got. So that's a bit awkward because <laughs> the headline is unintentionally hilarious. So, look, I will always say decide for yourself. I'd love to hear a staunch defence of Grace of Monaco. Great. Well, I think that that's a challenge out there for uh, those listening Go and watch Grace of Monaco and if you love it, tell Fee why. Let's have a conversation. I want to hear defence of this movie. And uh, (laughs) I guess, well, that brings us to the end of the show. So for those who are making staunch defences of Grace of Monaco, they can do that uh, on Facebook or Twitter at SBS Movies and make sure you subscribe to SBS The Playlist wherever you get your podcasts and give us lots of stars and leave us a nice review because it helps people to find the show. And I'm on Twitter at Ben Nguyen TV. And I'm on Twitter for all your Grace of Monaco defence uh, cases at anything but Fifi. 
do your worst. <laughs> and the playlist is produced by the punk Jeremy Wilmot. Until next week. Thanks for listening. 